Imogen from Squarepeg. When you arrive to meet a group of people and there isn't an obvious topic of conversation at hand, we all do the same weird thing. It's like a compulsion. We talk about the weather and most people think it's the most mundane topic of conversation in the world. But I think that is completely wrong. Weather is fascinating and predicting it has been an obsession for some of the smartest minds in every generation, as far back as the Babylonians. Because the weather affects all of us, all of the time. And accurate weather forecasts make us the master of our environment, which in a world of increasingly erratic weather events driven by climate change, is pretty vital. Today we speak to Shimon Elkabetz, the latest in that long line of people obsessed with the weather, and someone with a really personal connection to mastering the climate. Stay with us. I grew up in a small village in the northern part of Israel. It's called uh, Moshav. It's some form of agriculture village. It's next to the border with Lebanon. Uh, growing up as a kid, you know, we used to stay in shelters at least four weeks a year because missiles used to land from the skies coming from Lebanon. And I remember that very vividly, like me as a kid sitting with my parents underground, waiting for nights and, and such. I think it's a pretty normal Israeli kind of like growing up experience, knowing that at some point it will be your duty, you're going to have to go to the military and do your part. Shimon's talking about conscription. Israel is one of the few places in the world that requires men and women to serve in the military for two to three years when they leave high school. But Shimon didn't wait until he was 18 to go. At 14, he left the Moshev, his small village near the border, to go to a military boarding school, which he described as being the equivalent of West Point in the US. Prestigious, competitive, collegiate. And this early exposure to the military experience, the time he spent going to boarding school and preparing for enlistment in the Israeli Defense Force or the IDF, is what Shimon thinks defines the person he became. I spent there about four years, basically my high school years and uh, one year of the middle school. It was definitely, you know, the experience that shaped my personality. It's a leadership school, very much oriented to infantry. And this is where I met my best friends until today. I became very mature when I was young and just got ready to get enlisted and do, do my part. In general, I think you know, growing up in Israel and going through the military, it makes a few things around the entire population very similar. And I would say one is putting things in perspective and becoming more mature as a result. So if at the age of 18 in Australia or in the US or in Europe, people are going to college and they have four years to think of themselves and to enjoy life, average Israeli is going to defend their country. It makes you more mature by definition. Now, not to mention, you know, as you grow up in high school, you experience all kinds of things that in other countries you don't experience. When I was 16, my best friend died in a terror attack. He was a friend of mine in the military boarding school. He was getting his driving license from one of the authorities' offices. And on the way there, someone came on the bus and bobbed himself along with other 23 people. I was actually running towards the area. It was 15 minutes run from where I was just to see what's going on with my friend because he couldn't pick up the phone. And through that experience, you know, you have very different perspective on life. 
Of the Israeli founders that I've met, Shimon included, most describe their experience in the IDF as transformational. And it's hard to understate the importance of the IDF in creating a population of people with the skills and ambitions to be founders. As teenagers in the IDF, Israelis learn deeply technical skills, grow professional networks, and hone complex problem-solving capabilities in really high-pressure environments. It's like the perfect training ground for entrepreneurs. And the IDF is also known for having a culture that's deliberately anti-hierarchical and results-oriented. And pretty much every founder I've spoken to has described, in one way or another, a culture underpinned by meritocracy, where regardless of age or rank, you can contribute ideas. And I asked Shimon to reflect on this component of military life. So the meritocracy in the IDF and and more specifically in the IAF, I think it comes from, uh, one, the fact that you enlist almost all of the population. So by definition, you have people that in any normal circumstances wouldn't find themselves wearing uniform. So you have a very unique and diverse population of people that are not versus if you think about the people that are going to the military in Australia or in the US, these are people that are relatively coming from the same background or at least have the same mindset. You know, it's the typecast of a military person who wants to be in the military. Now, imagine that you had to enlist the entire Australian population to the military. The military characteristic would have been very different than what they are today. The second element is that Israel traditionally operated in under resources environment. Like you have to be creative, you have to do more from less, you have to learn to fly in less flights than what your counterparts in other countries. You have to just do more in very short amount of time. And that injected a lot of room for creativity of reacting fast, being constantly in a survival mode. It's not like most militaries that you know you can have decades without any battle. In Israel, every day you have some battle somewhere and somebody's fighting it. So a lot of the things are happening, you know, kind of like on the go. And if you are just, you know, too strict and you're not doing the right things, you're going to pay the price really fast. (laughs) So it forces you to really cherish the result over anything else because you literally lose or die by the result. And that's, by the way, very much, it's reminding me the business context. When you start your own business, if your business doesn't make money, you're going to lose. doesn't matter how good is your brand, how good is your image, how good is culture you've built. Eventually, you need to earn money. Entrepreneurs are very much similar in that context to people who had to struggle through the IDF. And that's, I think, why a lot of the Israeli population is very much attracted to starting new companies, new ventures and such. But we've skipped ahead a little. To even get into the IDF, recruits undergo rigorous examinations, aptitude tests, and physical challenges. And the most talented of these teenagers get funneled into the elite technological, combat, and intelligence units. Shimon was one such student, getting drafted into the Flight Academy. The Air Force is pretty much the hardest to get into and the most prestigious. You know, you start a Flight Academy, about 300 people, you finish less than 50. And they have the option to choose first among the population that is enlisted every year. And honestly, I wasn't dreaming of going to the Air Force. I just came to do the exams and started the process and just got in. And it was here, in the Air Force, where he spent 10 years totally obsessed with one thing, the weather. 
some of the most dangerous events I've experienced in my life were weather-related, for sure. Every pilot is familiar with a situation where you're about to land, it could be in the night, and suddenly you lose visibility, you don't see the ground, and it can be a pretty dangerous situation. I also lost a few friends uh, due to weather events. So as a pilot, understanding what will be the weather during takeoff, during landing, when you are in the most critical aspect of the mission, it's just insane how much it kept me busy. I was more concerned about that than about anything else. Just like, what will be the weather in the next 5, 15, 30 minutes? What does it mean on my fuel? What does it mean on whether I can land or take off? Should I go to this runway or the other one? And the moment I understood how big it is, is when I realized how impactful it is on the entire organization. And when you understand that you can plan something for months and months, and then the weather can play against you in the last minute, and nothing will work as a result, then you realize that the ROI of having a better prediction to based on your, your decisions is tremendous. But predicting the weather accurately is incredibly hard. I'll let Shimon explain. So the basic about weather or weather 101 is that how do you get a weather forecast? One, you need to understand what's happening now. All right, this is like observations. Where is it raining? What is the temperature? What's the wind in every location? And this is really the real-time description. Even that is pretty challenging. There are many gaps in the world, places where it's hard to understand what's happening because you don't have enough sensors. For example, you don't have radars, you don't have weather stations. Africa is a perfect example where data is pretty sparse. But then once you have the real-time information, you take that and you plug it into a model. There are all kinds of models, but the most uh, important type of model for predicting the weather is called numerical weather prediction. It's basically a physical simulation. You take the observations, you assimilate it into the model, and you run the model on a very powerful computer. Once you get an output, that output is what we call a weather forecast. So to even get close to a weather forecast, it requires sensors all over the globe to collect observational data, real-time communication to share that data, and powerful computation so that the data you've gathered can be put into a machine, turned through a model, and come out the other side as a weather forecast, ideally before the weather that you're trying to predict happens. Now, this is all possible with modern-day computers, but historically, it was kind of a guessing game. You'd mostly just look at the sky, try to figure out what the weather was like in the direction that the wind was coming from, and make an educated guess about what the weather would do. The British forces in World War II used this logic at the last minute to delay the D-Day landings by two days, miraculously hitting a good weather gap in between two bad weather fronts. So it wasn't always a bad forecast, it just wasn't exactly reliable, and you couldn't really predict it much further into the future than a few days. And it wasn't until the 50s that numerical weather prediction became viable, with increased understanding of atmospheric physics and the use of computerized calculations. And while the accuracy of weather predictions has increased dramatically since then, generic forecasts are still hard to tailor to an individual person's need. And this is what Shimon discovered when he was trying to plan his flights. I will lie if I say that when those things happened, I thought that I'm going to start a company. Only in retrospect, when we started to think about this industry and what can be done and what's the situation, realizing what we've been through and how much we were occupied by, you know, this <laughs> phenomena, 
only then we we kind of like connected all the dots. But you know, at the beginning, you're like, it's a given. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. You you don't even think that there's something to be done about it. When I thought about weather back at the time, it was like, oh yeah, you know, you watch the TV and there's this guy or girl talking about tomorrow in the next few days, and it's like, what they're talking about? I mean, nobody knows <laughs> what's going to happen really. But then you start learning, then you realize there's a whole industry around that. So just think about it for a second. Weather is so important. It's just mind-blowingly important. And it's only getting more important. We were surprised that we thought this is the black swan of the, the world. We didn't think of a pandemic, to be honest. But now, when you think about it, it's really probably the, the next black swan, hopefully. You know, that this is, and we won't have another big surprise. I think there's a pretty major agreement that, you know, in, in most relevant circles in the world, that climate and, and how weather is becoming more volatile is really going to be one of the, the biggest challenges of humankind. And everyone needs weather information to a greater or lesser degree. In businesses, the need is even more acute because you're having to make major decisions with relatively scarce information. And traditional weather companies can't really help on the scale that software companies can. You might be interested in weather because you surf. You want to know what will it do to the waves. I might have a dog and I want to know if I can walk the dog. Same applies for businesses. So Bank of America might be interested in the energy production so they can trade better. But the NFL might be interested in if there's lightning in the area so they can cancel or postpone a game, while an airline will be interested in something completely different. So different value proposition, different interest, product, buyer, pricing, very, very different stuff. So the old companies, to solve that complexity, basically solved it with people, you know, just throwing consultants at the problem. And the last thing is that whatever they gave to the customer is just non-actionable weather data. For example, telling you, hey, tomorrow the temperature will be 32 Fahrenheit or zero Celsius. Now you should go as the customer and think about what it means for you. You might be a sophisticated customer that understands weather and know what it does to your operations, and you might not. And this was the conversation that Shimon and his co-founders Ray and Itai were having over dinner in Boston one night in 2015 when they decided that it was time to solve it. All three co-founders were friends by this point, but Ray is the original linchpin. Ray went to school with Itai in Israel and to the Air Force with Shimon. At this point in their lives, they're all doing postgrads at either Harvard or MIT, or in Ray's case, both simultaneously. And when we wanted to start this company, we were like very, very passionate about this problem. We had this unique experience understanding that one, it's a big problem for pilots and for us personally, or for uh, anyone who's doing a mission critical activity. That was something that we connected to on a personal level. And we understood exactly the bits and bytes of how weather is impacting you and your mission. But more than that, the topic seemed pretty important for us. One, it's kind of like a life-saving type of mission. You know, there are so many from floods to agriculture and farmers all over the world. And you can see all the locust kind of like events right now in Africa and India and hurricanes and, and whatnot. You understand that the kind of mission is really, really important. And it's not what we used to joke about and say, it's not a categorized as like a P2P, privilege, privilege solution. Like, hey, let's help you optimize your travel on your, uh, you know, spring break or something like that. That was an important element for us. 
And so with the confidence of a good meal and two excellent friends apiece, they decided to get started. And they immediately focused on what they thought was the biggest problem to be solved, weather data accuracy. Yeah. So first of all, it was hard. Starting a company is extremely challenging. You <laughs> constantly question yourself. Is it the right decision? Is it the right market? Is it the right technology? Is it the right strategy? One thing I can tell you that I never questioned my two co-founders. Like, it was always there. And I think this is the most important thing for any founder. First of all, make sure you have a good team. Because there will be so many things that will bring you down. You must have a good team to go through it. So the roller coaster at the beginning is really, really hard. At the beginning, we were very focused on just more accurate data, not even models, just data. We, we wanted to find a, a technology edge and really nail that one. It was a big mistake, honestly. Oh, really? Yeah, because first of all, it's cool and it draws some attention, but it's not really useful. It took us many iterations to crisp the kind of like mission of the company to really power actionable insights and help people and organizations manage their weather-related challenges. Today, we're not optimizing for the accuracy. If we need to be accurate to help you make a better decision, we'll do that. But if we don't, and all you need is the right information at the right time, maybe the right thing to do is to improve the alerting mechanism. Maybe we want to be able to integrate it with the right tool for you. Maybe we want to put it in the language that you can understand. So at the beginning, we, I would say that in the first year, for sure, so much energy was wasted on, you know, just let's be the most accurate and solve that. And, you know, really doing things that were very cool and, and important, but not necessarily creating value. And this was where the Air Force training kicked in. You plan, you execute, you do a retrospective review. What I am happy about is that despite that day one was such, you know, I would call it in a pilot's language, it's called like a dog leg, where you're basically, instead of moving straight to your target, you're just doing like 90 degrees to the right, 90 degrees to the left, 90 degrees to the left, and another 90 degrees to the right, and you're back in your track. So that dog leg really, we went back on track is because we constantly learn. We always question ourselves. We always try to, you know, think what we did wrong. And the most important thing is to implement, you know, just not to be afraid to make tough decisions and not to be in love with your idea because the idea is useless. You should be really focused on what kind of problem you're trying to solve for the customer and just find all kinds of ways to do that. And if you stick to your technique or specific idea or technical solution. That's why I don't like where when companies define themselves as AI for. No, it's, it's who cares that you're doing an AI. Solve the problem. Today you use AI, tomorrow you might use something else. So I think this approach really saved us from our early mistakes. They also learned a ton about building a great team. I came from the need, from the customer perspective, right? I, I'm not a meteorologist by training. I'm not an engineer Basically, what I am is the super user. And I thought, look, if you have a great product, everybody would want to use it. <laughs> but, you know, building a company is so much more than that. First of all, it's about people. It's about building a really great team. And we failed in that as well. The first year, you know, we, we hired terribly. Like, really, <laughs> like, we did all the mistakes, you know, hired for skills and not for attitude. And 
I didn't appreciate how complex the building a sales organization and when is the right time to bring the first salespeople. At the beginning, it was too early, then it was too late. And, you know, all of those <laughs> elements of first-time founder, I have to say that I just admire VCs for investing in first-time entrepreneurs. It's just <laughs> because you do so many silly mistakes at the beginning and not everyone can fix fast and learn fast. And this was mostly a surprise because Shimon had managed teams for years in stressful situations, life and death situations, and he'd been really good at it. Yeah, so I came with relatively a lot of managerial experience, having been through military service and being a, a manager, commander for, for many years, and also been through military boarding school, uh, all about uh, leadership and such. I think transitioning to selecting a team, that's something that, and assembling a team, you know, in my prior experience, the team was given. I had to mentor, I had to make sure everybody's like, but it was pretty much given. It's not about, you know, hey, here's a big sample, US population, Israeli yeah. population, go, go build the best team you can think of. I think understanding what kind of team members I'm looking for. And that process really helped me think about my values. Who are the people I want to be next to? What kind of uh, energy I want around me? What's more important for me? Really, really smart people or kind people? Does it worth it to expedite the delivery but compromise on culture? So all kinds of questions that today I'm at the beginning some levels of pressure to deliver could push me to do some mistakes. But today I'm more, I wouldn't say solid as a rock, but definitely I'm more stable in terms of I understand what's important. I understand the price of short-term optimization and what it does to the long-term in a way that I make decisions that are not so intuitive today. I think this is like part of the process of, okay, I understand that it might look that this is the best thing to do, but let's think three, four, five steps ahead. Understand that we might suffer here for a month or two or three. And that helps me, you know, make tough decisions, even, you know, in times like, like this, like the pandemic and understanding that eventually tough decisions will be much tougher if you don't make the decisions on time. And so they began to build the hiring skills optimizing for values. 100%. I mean, obviously, you want to have a good combination of experience and skills, but I think people underestimate the importance of energy, attitude, similar values. It's a prerequisite versus, you know, the skills that you can train people, you can mentor people. You cannot turn a jerk into a very kind human being. Yeah. <laughs> I think the ultimate test for anyone thinking about the team members you have or your manager is ask yourself a simple question in your next company. Would you want to have that person with you or not? One of my favorite things about getting to know the founders we work with is learning about how they structure their teams. Because the structure of teams so often reveals core values about what's important and what needs to be prioritized. So we're a company of about 100 people and we structure the company in a very interesting way so usually companies have one R&D organization. Climacell has two R&D organizations, and that's unique. One organization is based out of the U.S., and that organization has one objective, create the most accurate weather technology. 
a team of scientists, most of them are PhDs. And what they're doing is creating uh, better data and most importantly, better models to improve weather forecasting. Once they do their job and you have an infrastructure that provides you the most accurate historical, real-time, short-term, long-term forecast, the other team is getting into the picture. And the other team is based out of Tel Aviv. And that's a product and engineering team, software developers and product managers that are building applications on top of the weather platform. Our B2C app, our API, and our business dashboard. And what the division to two organizations helped us do is have a very focused strategy for each. So the scientific organization is solely focused on waking up in the morning and thinking, how do I make climate cell more accurate? It's a big task. It's a major task. It's so complicated. If they had to also build the consumer app, it would have been impossible. And what it helps the team in Tel Aviv do is to wake up in the morning and say, okay, that's the weather. It's given by our team in, in the U.S. Now let's think about the best way to serve our customers, to translate it to business impact, to provide the most delightful product to them. And I think this is uh, one of the things I'm very, very proud of, that it's too complicated. Let's break it to two. And it works perfectly. Not perfectly. I mean, it's challenging. Uh, time zones and, you know, you have all the issues with uh, the transition of, of data from this group to the other group and, and such. But on a high level, we're moving pretty fast. And with the organizational muscles flexing in product design and team building, the Climasum team began to make huge strides forward in understanding how to adapt weather insights for businesses tackling three key areas, reliable data, flexible applications, and operational guidance. So what Climasun is doing is really we're tackling each of these points. One, we're doing our own technology, own data and own models, and really try to create higher accuracy than what the government provides because we optimize for business problems. Two, we built a multi-vertical platform that can really adjust, just like Microsoft Excel. You have templates, it doesn't matter if you're a CFO or an analyst in a VC or whatever, you can build the tab with formulas based on your needs. So we built a software that can really adjust itself to different verticals. And the last thing is that we don't only predict the weather, we try to predict the business outcome and to tell the customer what is our best recommendation given the expected weather. And by doing that, we provide a whole new level of value. We are focused on helping organizations make better weather-related decisions versus, you know, just giving you raw weather data. And this, the ability to apply complex weather information to an organization's need is the key differential between Climacell and every other weather forecasting company. Because not only can Climacell tell you that it's raining, they can give you the information exactly when you need it and help you make critical business decisions. And as we were talking about their customers, which includes behemoths such as Uber and JetBlue and AWS and the US Air Force, Shimon told me this extraordinary story about a new customer of theirs, a utility company in India that joined Climacell in mid-May this year. You may know that on the 21st of May, mid-COVID pandemic, India and Bangladesh were hit by a giant cyclone, Cyclone Amphan. It was the strongest cyclone to hit the Ganges Delta in 10 years, reaching wind speeds of 260 kilometers an hour, destroying hundreds of homes and killing at least 120 people. There was a cyclone Amphan in India, 
uh, devastating, uh, you know, the equivalent of Hurricane Category 5, something really, really powerful that went through India and Bangladesh. And what Climacell provided is our hypercast platform. And, and what the, the software is doing is really, it's helping the customer make better decisions. So when something so powerful and big like a cyclone comes, everybody knows it's going to be, you know, high winds for a day, almost everywhere. It seems like, you know, there's, there's no way to optimize against it, right? It's kind of like a tsunami, you know, there isn't really much you can do about it. But what we found out is that, hey, they have very big infrastructure. Some of it is more sensitive than the other. Some of it is going to see higher winds. Some of it will see less. And what the software is doing is basically helping them focus on the right infrastructure in the right time. So during a pandemic, when... Hundreds of millions of Indians rely on that company for electricity and are locked down, cannot leave home, and electricity is, is more important than ever. A cyclone is coming. And, and they used Glymosil for the first time during that cyclone. And the software gave them very specific recommendations around when and where to send their crews to support the lines from falling so they can keep the infrastructure is safe and avoid outage. And it was perfect. And one of the senior executives over there reached out to me via LinkedIn, you know, uh, a day after that happened, it was like, you guys saved us. Really, really saved us. Uh, and started telling me the story. And I was like, hey, can you show up to our old faces, uh, <laughs> which was the, the new version of the whole hands, yeah. and just tell the story to the employees. Tell, tell us the story. Tell us what happened. And that happened today, actually. It's definitely one of those moments where you were like, think about the fact, you know, that story that started four years ago ended up in a software that helps millions of people in the other side of the world, in India, basically get electricity during a global pandemic. And as we were wrapping up the conversation, Shimon and I were talking about fundraising. And I asked him to reflect on his experience and what he thinks is important. It's a relationship. And I realized it from the very beginning. And I remember us trying to raise the first uh, round and turning down a term sheet that was better than what we eventually took because we thought that the chemistry with a partner wasn't amazing. And that's a very mature decision. And I remember, I think one of the early lessons in my prior career is that I always want to be around people that I appreciate, that I enjoy working with. And that led me to a place where I'm saying, I, I'd rather not have a company than to have a company that is surrounded by people that I don't, don't enjoy working with. So I think this led us throughout our entire fundraising. And the relationship with the board as a result is just super constructive, super friendly. And it's a relationship that is doing the best eventually for the shareholders. It's just a positive and, and helpful relationship. When I hear stories from founders about, you know, making stuff because the board wants or because the investors push for some, I just, I can't imagine how hard it is because building a company is so hard. Having this extra pressure from investors that is not relevant or helpful, you know, it's kind of like, it's too much to handle. Throughout our conversation, he also had a really clear ask of investors and founders. 
to go after the most meaningful, contributive challenges in the world. What surprised me the most in the context of weather and VC investment is that the impact of having more accurate weather technology globally and better solutions to manage weather-related challenges is incredible. It's about saving lives. It's about food supply. It's safety. It's about well-being and welfare of so many people around the globe. It's all the things that are important in this world. And the investment it takes to improve it, I'm not talking about climate, I'm talking about globally. I would expect billions of dollars to be put into work to solve that problem. But no, there aren't many companies in that area. And, you know, VCs invest in dog walking apps. It's, it's all great. And it's probably an amazing ROI. But I'm just amazed that, for me, it was an amazing opportunity as well from a business perspective that I was like, we can really look at this problem holistically and try to come up with something that is a game changer, create a really big impact. And I'm just amazed that, you know, sometimes we think about solutions that we want to implement and we're limited by money. And then I'm like, wait, we're talking about $10 million to improve weather forecasting in Asia, in Africa, in South America. How many people will enjoy from having a better weather forecast? What will it do to the food supply, to farmers that their livelihood is dependent on it? And it's just, it's insane to think about it. Even in a pandemic time, there's so much money in the world that is not going to relevant solutions. And VCs should go there because the big solutions won't come from the World Bank. It won't come from nonprofits. They're not equipped to come up with solutions that are end-to-end. It's only coming from, not only, but venture-backed companies are proven to do really big things. And I wish we could see more money coming into that space because it's just too important to be neglected. If you want to learn more about Climacell, about their nonprofit that helps close the gap in weather information in some of the poorest regions in the world, or about their app for people like you and me, you can find it online. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to stay in touch, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to help, leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, find us in all the regular places. Have a great week.